So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to uh, Isaiah 9, verse 2. Isaiah 9, 2. Um, This is our last week in this passage. And uh, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know this is part of our Advent series. We've been in Isaiah 9 um, for, I think it's the fourth week. And this is our last service in 2020. Um, And so as we look at this text one more time, there's tons of different questions we could ask coming to this text. A lot of different directions I wanted to go in. But I felt this last question was the most critical to ask of this text. I think it's the most important question not only to, to ask reflecting on the year 2020, but to ask as we enter into the year 2021. And it's this question. Do we believe the promises of God? Do we believe in God, God's promises? Do we hear his promises like from a text like Isaiah 9, and do we receive it and believe it in faith? And I'm not just talking about saying that we believe it or confessing that we believe it in public. I'm talking, do we live like we believe this promise? And we've seen the past few weeks, the text that we're about to look at is a text that focuses on our King Jesus, his advent into this world to establish an eternal kingdom And so as we look at this text one more time, I want you to read it with this question in mind. Do I believe this? Do I believe this promise from God? Here's the passage again, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we should all uh, hopefully be familiar with this text by now. Um, And last week, we spent our entire time really thinking about, dwelling on, saturating our hearts with the reality of who this child is, who this son who is given to us. He's the king who sits on the throne of David. He's the deliverer who who breaks the rod of the oppressor. And he's the treasure before whom you and I will rejoice with great joy. This is Jesus. This is our king. And in this text, this promise that is given through the prophet Isaiah, we see the, the light of the glory of Christ shine into the darkness of our world And we call that shining 2,000 years ago, 
Christmas. That's what we call it. So this text points to Christmas, but like we've said, it points beyond Christmas. It's more than Christmas here. This text is a promise to us, those who receive it, those who hear a son has been given to you and take it and say, that's for me. It's a promise to us that goes far beyond Christmas because it says that that same son is going to one day come back and he's going to establish his kingdom in fullness. The birth of this child 2,000 years ago was the infiltration of our world with a kingdom that will never, ever, 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 ever end. It's a kingdom that verse 7 says is defined by peace and justice and righteousness, a kingdom that has no limits. So just think about that. No limits. There will be no geographical boundaries around this kingdom. There will be no chronological limits to this kingdom's existence. It will relentlessly and unwaveringly penetrate and encompass every sphere, every jurisdiction that you can conceive of in this world. And all of it belongs to Jesus belongs to our king, the son who was given. He alone reigns over this kingdom. Every millimeter of it, he looks at it and says, that's mine. It belongs to me. And according to verse two, and according to really the whole passage, which is given to us, you and I stunningly share in this kingdom. This kingdom is ours too. We're part of this kingdom with Christ. Those who belong to Christ, our citizens, like Michael sang just a few minutes ago, and we all sang, of heaven. It's our home. What you read in Isaiah 9 is your home. It's your inheritance. It belongs to you because you belong to him. And what this means is that Isaiah 9 isn't just about a holiday we celebrate every year. It's about our future. It's what it's going to look like. It's a promise that God's going to send his son back into the world one day. And when he does, he will install his kingdom visibly and permanently in great power, just like Isaiah has told us. So this is a promise from God to us. And much of the New Testament labors to remind us of his promises like this promise by rooting it in what God has already done through Jesus. And so, for example, Hebrews 9.26, we'll be in Hebrews quite a bit today, but Hebrews 9.26 is an example of reiterating the promises like Isaiah 9 for those who are New Testament believers like you and I. Hebrews 9.26 goes like this. It says, as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, listen to this, eagerly waiting for him. So Christ appeared once. This is what Christmas is about, his appearance into this world. And when he came that first time, he came to deal with sin. He came to put away sin, die as a sacrifice for all those who would put their faith in him and trust him. 
And now he promises to return a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's who he's saving. And I want to think about those last few words of Hebrews 9, uh, verse 28, while we reflect on that question that I asked earlier. Do we believe in the promises of God? Are we living as though his promises are true? Notice the ones in this text that Christ is going to come back to, to, to save. They're defined really by one thing. They are eagerly waiting for him. They are longing for him. They are desperately desiring his second coming. And the emphasis in the Greek on this word is desiring it from leaving a certain place and going into a certain place. It's this this desiring that is more than anything else. I'll let go of everything to grab onto this one thing. That's who he's coming to save. Those who, who see Isaiah 9 in the scriptures as a promise to them and know it's real and long for it. So this isn't a a trivial question. In fact, this this kind of question, do we believe in the promises of God, could not be any more important. Do we trust that when he says this kingdom is going to come, that it's going to come? Or do our lives look like the lives of people who in this world have zero confidence, zero desire for this kingdom of Isaiah 9. Instead, they're, they're fixated or preoccupied on the comforts of this present world. And one of the things that I think has become clear uh, this year um, as it had progressed and one catastrophic event after another kept happening um, is that for Christians in general and, and really American Christians specifically, this year has in many ways because of how comfortably we live in this world, been a test for us about whether or not we look at a passage like Isaiah 9 and say, I believe that. That's for me. I believe that. Whether or not we are are shaped by promises in the scriptures or shaped by just the circumstances of life that are around us. Whether it be anything that happened in 2020 from the virus all the way through to the elections, what are we, like when we look back at this past year, what were we fixated on? What were we focused on as believers? If 2020 was a test, and if we looked at how we responded, how our lives responded to the issues that define this last year, do we see ourselves living like this eternal kingdom in Isaiah 9 is real? Or have we been focused and preoccupied with the buffeting of all of the different things that happened this year? And I want to spend our time this evening and in the morning for those who are watching tomorrow. As we start to approach 2021, I want us to, all of us together, press into the necessity of believing in the promises of God, of holding his promises as treasures and living with the urgency that we are shown by being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are not primarily citizens of this world. I know it feels like that. That's not the case. We are not primarily citizens of the United States of America. We are not primarily citizens of the state of Washington. We are citizens, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, first and foremost of the kingdom of heaven 
Isaiah 9 is our home. We are eagerly awaiting the king of Isaiah 9. So what does it look like for us to do that? For us to eagerly await our king. For us to be focused on his coming into this world. And so to answer that question, what I want to do is I want to turn a few more chapters in Hebrews to Hebrews 11 and look at a man who shows us what it means to believe a promise from God. This man, you may have guessed him, is the father of our faith, Abraham. And so turn with me to Hebrews 11, verse 8. You probably know this already. Hebrews 11 is this hall of fame of faith, really is what it's, it's often referred to, of just people throughout the Old Testament who were faithful um, and trusted God when they were given promises, even when everything didn't seem like those promises were happening. And so I want to look at Abraham. Abraham was given a promise by God that he would have an inheritance. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, tells us that he lived, when he lived his life, he lived with that promise in view. That's how he lived his life. So what does that look like? What does it look like to eagerly await the fulfillment of a promise that God has made to his people? A promise that he's made to you and to me. Well, Hebrews 11 paints the picture. Look at verse eight. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in, in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So this is, this is how we live in light of God's promises. When he promises something to us, this is an example of how we, we live. It says he, was, he obeyed when he was called by God to move to this other place, despite not knowing anything that was gonna befall him when he was going there. And he lived in the land of promise, it says, as a foreigner. He lived in tents with Isaac and with Jacob. In other words, when they lived in the land of promise, despite being heirs of the promise that would give them that land, they lived as foreigners. They lived like they were in a foreign land. Now, why did they live that way? Why didn't they just get comfortable? Why didn't they just settle down and say, this is home. This is where I'm gonna live from now on. Well, it tells us they weren't interested in that being home. They were looking forward to a city, it says, that has foundations. A city whose designer and builder is God. That's what they were looking forward to. In other words, there was inside them a, a holy kind of discontentment in their hearts for the world, for the things of the world. They were preoccupied and gripped and fixated on something that this world could not give them. Namely, a city with foundations, a city that was built by the very hands of the God who made the promise. They knew that everything in this world was temporary and fleeting. It had an expiration date and they didn't want anything with an expiration date. They wanted something that was permanent and that's this city. And in verse 13, 
just a few verses below this, the author of Hebrews explains to us why Abraham did this, why Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, why they did this when they came to the land of promise. Listen very carefully to what he says here. Verse 13, these all died in their faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would, not have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, the author says, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So the author's telling us here that, that in their lives, they never received fulfillment of the promises that they had been given. They lived their entire lives and they died without fulfillment being culminated in their lives. They, they, he says they saw and greeted the promises from afar. Just like you and I, sitting in 2020, look off into Isaiah 9, could be tomorrow, could be a thousand years from now, and we see it and we greet it from afar. We're not there right now. Although we know that Christ is on his throne right now, although we know he is sovereignly governing all things that happen in this world, nothing is happening outside his hand. Right now, though, just like Abraham, we see the promise of Isaiah 9 and we can only greet it from a distance. And so, given that's how Abraham and his sons were in this world looking at the promise from a distance, how, how did they do that? How did they, how did they live that way? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That was the first thing they did. They lived and they spoke like this wasn't their home. They were strangers here. And that language, exiles, strangers, sojourners, foreigners, is the same language the New Testament uses to describe you and I, New Testament Christians. In this present world, we are exiles and strangers in this world, just like Abraham. This is not our home. And just like Abraham, we must speak thus. It says he spoke thus and really lived his whole life in such a way that it was vividly clear to the people outside of him that he was seeking a homeland. This wasn't his home. He was seeking something that this world could never provide him. And so here's, here's a question. Just as we go through this, I want to reflect on like our lives and, and, and I'm reflecting as well just with you. Do I speak this way? Do I live in such a way where people say, there's something different about you. You want something that this world could never provide you. You are seeking a homeland. Like as I reflect on, on my life in 2020, and I would invite you to do the same, has it been crystal clear to the world around me that this world isn't my home, that I seek 
another world, that this is, this is not a world that I belong to, that I am interested in a heavenly kingdom, or do I look like an unbeliever who, who doesn't acknowledge the, the kingdom to come and is really only interested in shoring up what I have in this life, in this world? What do we look like to the world around us? What did we look like in 2020? Well, I can tell you what Abraham looked like in 2020. It says, if they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, he desired a better country. He desired a heavenly country. So think about this. They refused to think about the land that they had gone out from. They refused to think about the land that they were leaving to go into the promise. They didn't even give it the time of day. They longed for, they desired, they were gripped by the better country. That's how they lived their lives. And I don't know what it was like for Abraham back then, but I think for us, a good litmus test to see if we are doing this is thinking about what we occupy our times with. What do we talk about with our friends? What do we watch on TV or watch at all? What do we listen to? What do we consume? Do we consume and engage and interact about things that are fixated on the better country of Hebrews 11, the heavenly country, or do we preoccupy our time and our energy and our resources fixating on the country we live in right now or the world we live in right now? Which country have we committed our lives to? Which world have we given our hearts and our affections to? This isn't a, a secondary question on the side of Christianity. I want to make sure that's clear. This isn't like Christianity 2.0. This is the reality of the Christian walk. And we're going to see that more as we continue. This is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And, and let's be very real about this. I'm not saying that we should not have an opinion about the things that are going on in the world. I'm not saying that we should not be involved in the world or exercise the responsibility that God has given us in this world. We absolutely should do that. In fact, we must do that. But here's the deal. In our efforts to speak into this world and make an impact in this world and, and, and do what we must as we live in this world, if we become fixated on this world and we lose sight of the kingdom, it will not matter a bit what we say to this world. It won't matter. If this world is our home, what we say has no value to them and we will lose our witness. If we embrace this world, this country, our life here as home, then we forsake the kingdom and we turn away from the promise of God to whatever we can build with our own hands, whatever we can control with our own lives. And we can say with our mouths, and I, 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 I've seen this in the broader uh, American Christianity culture, we can say with our mouths all day long that this isn't our home. This isn't where we belong. But if we treat it like home, if we're comfortable with our life here in this world and we do not eagerly wait for our king, then it's home no matter what we say with our mouths, it's home. Our lives show where we take comfort. And if that was the case, our life would look nothing like Abraham's. And we can't, we can't have that be. He lived in this world as an exile. 
He was seeking a homeland, Hebrews said. This wasn't his home. His mind, his heart, his soul, his life was shaped by a promise he was given by God. And the author in Hebrews, 9, or Hebrews 11 shows us the significance of having that kind of life, having that kind of life that is shaped by the promise. He says, therefore, God in response to Abraham seeking a homeland in this world, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That is an awesome thing to have said of you. God is unashamed of them. And the reason why is because they trusted God with everything. It was all in God's hands. Their pursuit in this world was a pursuit of God. It wasn't anchored in their standing in this world. It wasn't anchored if they were received in this world by people. It wasn't anchored in what anybody in this world could give them. They, they, had their pursuit in God as the central reality of their life. And God looked at them with great joy and says, those are my people. They belong to me. Abraham belongs to me. And I am not ashamed to be called their God. Because their lives in this world were not ultimate to them. They treasured God over everything. And the author tells us, God in response to that, prepares for them a city, and that city has foundations. What that means is this, that city will never end. It's not like a tent. It's not going away tomorrow. It has foundations, and this city that he's talking about in Hebrews is the same reality, the same home that we see in Isaiah 9 that we spent all month looking at. It's the same thing, this kingdom. He's saying that Abraham and his children had fixed their eyes on this city and they refused to put their trust in anything that this world could offer them. So let's reflect again. Is that our story? Is that, is that my experience? As I went through 2020 and we were buffeted on all sides by craziness, was that true for me? Was that my life? And I don't know what it is for each of us, but I think it's pretty clear that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not put their trust and confidence based on this text in Hebrews in their jobs, in their homes, in their health, in their political party, in their government. Their confidence was not in those things. Their confidence was in God alone because they were seeking a homeland and therefore nothing in this world could satisfy their desires. They had their hearts and their minds and their souls fixed on one thing, the city, the city that God has prepared for us. And the reason I say uh, that this isn't a secondary issue, this is central to the Christian faith is because the Bible clearly shows us that this is the main issue. Jesus in Matthew 6.33 tells us, seek first the yeah, kingdom of God. This is not a secret. This is everything. And when Jesus tells us that, that's not a suggestion. It's not nice to have. That is a command from the king. And listen to me, it's not only a command from Jesus, but it is the only pathway into the kingdom is by 
seeking it, receiving it in faith, anchoring your heart and mind on that Christ who is the king and his kingdom. And Paul in the New Testament felt this burden in nearly every epistle. I read like three or four, just through three or four epistles this morning and I was like, man, it is everywhere. I can't not see it. He felt this burden always with the churches that he cared for and he fought for them to keep their eyes fixed on the city, keep their eyes fixed on the kingdom of Isaiah 9. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a really brief moment and look at Philippians 3, uh, starting with verse 17. And I want, I want us to listen to how Paul engages the New Testament church with this reality, with their need to seek the kingdom of God instead of trying to build their kingdom in this world. Philippians 3, verses 17. Listen to his, his, his words here. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, Why? Why, Paul? Why, why should we do that? Why should I imitate you? Why should I imitate those who walk according to the example that, that you set? And he tells us here, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now make no mistake about that. That is a dire warning and we know it's serious because he lists the stakes of the warning in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. And when he uses that word destruction, he doesn't mean they're just gonna die. Everyone's gonna die. He's talking about something deeper and far greater. He's talking about eternal destruction, which tells us one thing, how we live in response to the kingdom of Isaiah 9, to the reality of Christ Jesus and his kingdom, how we live in response to that matters forever. It matters forever. Saying we trust in Christ and then making this world and this country our home is not only incoherent to the realities of what they are, but it is disastrous. God, God will not be mocked. That's what Paul's saying here. God sees right through pretense and he knows this, which is why he's telling them, listen, you need to imitate me. Imitate me, imitate people who walk like me. And the reason why is because many, many, he says, not a few, not a handful, Many, he says, with tears streaming down his face as he writes this, many now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are people who, who didn't start out that way. They didn't start out as enemies of the cross. That's why Paul's weeping. That's why he's heartbroken about this. To him, they were brothers and sisters in Christ at one point, and now they're enemies of the cross. Well, how did that happen? How did they become enemies? Well, verse 19 tells us, it says, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, things of this world. In other words, their God, 
who they serve is the cravings of their body, their passions, their desires in this world. And they glory in what this world can provide them, which is why he says they glory in their shame. They are glorying in something that is temporary, that will fade away at some point. And so to fixate on this present world when they were given a promise that will outlast the stars is insanity and it is shameful. Their minds are set not on the eternal kingdom of Christ, but on earthly things. Or in the words of Hebrews 11, they are not seeking a homeland. They are not seeking a better country. They are not seeking a kingdom. They are simply settling down in this world and making it their home. And you have to wonder, maybe they had good reasons in their minds. Maybe they had convinced themselves that what they were doing was for the kingdom. Started out innocent enough, but at some point they just got tired of seeking the homeland and they just told Paul, listen, I don't want to give up anything else. The cost of being a Christian in this world is too high and I refuse to give it up. This isn't rampant immorality that he's describing here. It's very clear. These are people who are simply putting other things before God. And now he describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's pleading with the Philippians, don't do this. He's pleading with us 2,000 years later, don't do this. And the glorious reason he gives for us not doing this is in verse 20. And this is where I want to sort of come to a close here. This is why fixing our eyes on this promise is the most important thing in our lives. Listen to what he says in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, we have a king. We have a king and he's like nothing else in this universe. And there is literally nothing more worthy than this king. There's nothing that we could give our time to, our energy to, our affections to than him. Nothing better, nothing greater and he's promised in his word to us that he's coming back for us. He's coming back for those who are citizens of heaven. He's coming back for you. And he's coming back for me. I mean, think about that. He, he will one day, just imagine it in your mind. It's going to happen. He will come, break open the sky, and he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body in an act that will show the world definitively this is the true king. There's no one greater than him. Paul is telling the Philippians something really simple. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom. And we see here actually in his description of who we are as citizens of heaven, why those who turn away from this seeking are called enemies of the cross. They turn away from the seeking because they aren't thinking about the glorious coming savior. They're thinking about this world. They're thinking about their lives here as though it could compare to it. And Paul is, is, is he's, he's, he's on his knees. You can tell just 
pleading with the Philippians, don't go down this path. Don't go down this path. I've seen it happen before. There is nothing that this world can offer you that is more worthy than Christ and then his kingdom that he promises us he's going to bring us. Don't go down this path. There's nothing that you can have in this world that can compare to it. And when people see uh, our lives, like this is, when I was looking at this text, this is constantly what came up to, in my heart as I was studying it, is self-reflection, how I talk, how I live, how I do everything in this life, in this world, in 2020. Do people see me and do they say that person is different? That person isn't shaped by this world like everybody else. That person is shaped by a promise that is a world that this world could never provide. It is a homeland that they are seeking. Or do I, God forbid, do I blend right in? Do I look like everybody else? Do I have the same hopes, dreams, goals, all horizontal, as unbelievers who have no stake in the kingdom, don't have any desire to go into it. Do I look like that? This is a serious question. The reason these people are enemies of the cross isn't because they're actively opposing Paul's ministry. It's because their lives, in light of the reality of the cross, make the cross look like a fool's errand. Makes it look foolish. The cross is the source of every blessing we have, according to Ephesians 1, in the heavenly places. Every blessing that you and I have, the eternal kingdom of Isaiah 9, exists for us because Jesus died on that cross. And so to be preoccupied with earthly things is to say, is to look at the glorious realities of Isaiah 9 and the death of the Son of God, and to say, you know, I'd just rather be here. I'd rather have a nice car. I'd rather have a nice house. I'd rather live in this life. It's to be preoccupied with earthly things, and that dishonors Christ. And let me just tell you, that's the last thing in the world that we want to do. Last thing in the world we want to do. The cross is the most glorious thing to happen in human history. And the reason it's the most glorious thing to happen in human history is because the one who hung on that cross is more worthy than all of reality combined. There is no one like our king. There is nothing in this world that can be remotely compared to him and to the kingdom that he has for us, the city that has foundations, the better country, the homeland that you and I were made for. And so in the next few moments, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, and as we sing a song, if your faith is in Christ, if you receive Christ, you are welcome to, to partake in communion. And I, I want, as we do that, this time, the last time in 2020 that we're going to do this, at least in this context, I want us to ask the Holy Spirit, as we are prayerfully participating in communion, as we are singing these songs, I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of places in our lives, whether in 2020 or just historically, where we have been preoccupied with and fixated on earthly things, things in this world. 
instead of setting our lives and our hope on the eternal kingdom that we see, the better country that we know, the, 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 the homeland that we know is for us from our king. My prayer going into 2021, and I'll talk a, a little bit more about this in a few moments. My prayer is that we would all, all of our church would make this king and this kingdom everything to us going into 2021 that we would not waste 2020, that we would not waste the hardships we've had this year, but that we would use them by God's grace to press deeper into the glory of God, deeper into Christ, deeper into pursuing him and believing his promises in a way that we wouldn't be able to do without 2020. That's my prayer for this year, that people would look at our lives how we live and say, they have a king that is not of this world. Who's your king? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you look so different from the rest of this world? That God would do that in our lives. That God would use what we've struggled through this year as a means by which he brings that reality out of our hearts, out of our souls. So let's pray to that end, friends. Father God, we love you. We love you. We, we trust you. And we know that you have made a promise that you will not break. We know that what we see in Isaiah 9, the glories of that kingdom are not theory, they're not fiction, they're not a nice story, they are reality and they are being kept in heaven for us right now according to 1 Peter. And Father, what we need is we need our hearts and our lives to be shaped by the reality of them, the realness of them. Father God, we need that to press into our worlds that we would speak thus as Hebrews 11 says, that we would live in such a way, Father God, that it shows that we are seeking a homeland, that this is not our home. I pray that you give us hearts to that end, Father God, and that you'd help us feel the glory and the value and the beauty, not only of the kingdom that we read about in Isaiah 9, but Father God, that we would feel and know and treasure the glory of Jesus Christ, our King. Help our hearts see something of that going into 2021 so that we are different people because of your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.